And then the moment that Princess Bee takes her mating flight, one drone bee will mate with her and when he ejaculates, his phallus then explodes and falls off. And he dies. Yes, pretty great way to go, but that's it. End of life for him. for introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and my guest today is a malip- <laughs> meliponist, which is the fancy term for a stingless beekeeper. She is also the woman behind Be Yourself Australia. Be prepared for a lot of bee puns this episode, and welcome to the show, the fabulous Sarah Hamilton. <laughs> hey, Chelsea. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my first question is uh, pretty much straight to the point. Why do you like bees so much? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, I suppose it kind of takes me back to my roots. So I've always been like a super um, just out in nature, outdoorsy type kid. Anything mm. to do with nature, insects, creatures, living animals, growing you know I'm a horticulturalist by trade Mm -hmm. so being able to work with the bees was just like a transitioning back to what I've always loved which is just nature so yeah plus they're fascinating and these particular little bees you know they're harmless and safe and yeah beautiful to work with yeah so you work specifically with stingless bees which honestly I did not know was a thing (laughs) um so uh, why did you choose specifically to work with stingless bees? That happened kind of just by accident, by coincidence, mm-hmm. because um, an old family friend of, of mine, um, he, he'd been keeping these native bees in my yard for some time, for a couple of years. And so I used to see them there all the time. And it was just kind of by accident that I went, you know what, I could do this actually, you know. And so he taught me everything I knew. I did like a very informal kind of a apprenticeship with him and learnt the trade um but yeah that's it's kind of just by accident I forgot the question (laughs) (laughs) Um, why you started working with stingless bees oh yeah and I actually um I did start keeping some European honeybees as well um and then I very quickly discovered that I'm highly highly allergic to those guys and yeah. biology was getting worse and worse and it was at the point where it was like dangerous so oh okay yeah I stepped back from that and just yeah. up. <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. I do think um choosing stingless bees is probably the right choice in terms of they can't sting you Absolutely. um so that's always a good thing because yeah I am quite terrified of bees but I think stingless bees they can't sting you so yeah. it would be fine you know, a lot of people are really terrified of bees. They have that phobia. But mm. the, these little guys are actually, you, you don't feel that instant fear because they are so much smaller. They look different to a mm. honeybee. And, of course, they are stingless. So you know yeah. they're, they're, they're completely harmless. Yeah. Are stingless bees native to Australia? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There are other countries around the world that have their own species of native bees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europe, South America. Um, sorry, not Europe, Asia and South America um, and PNG and stuff like that. But we've got uh, 12 species here in Australia of native. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And the reason why you've probably never heard of them before is because down in Victoria, they actually don't naturally occur down there. So that's totally understandable. They're too cold and wet. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) They're up along the east coast and uh, along the top end of Australia as well. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I did want to mention it, even though you work with stingless bees, so it isn't so much a thing. I just, talking about bees, have to talk about the fact that they have the worst built-in defence mechanism of any animal. Like, they use their stinger and they die. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about bees is you never view them as, like, an individual. Mm. Um, it's always like you, you view the hive as the living organism. So an individual bee might die once it's stung you, which most of the time they do, not all of the time, but most of the time they will die. But that's um, just an individual bee in a whole collective consciousness of a hive. If you kind of view it like that, it's a little bit different. That makes it sound far more terrifying. <laughs> like you might kill one, but then the others will get you. <laughs> well, you know, the strange thing is, Native bees, okay, so they don't have a stinger, but they still have to have a defence mechanism, Mm -hmm. right? So when they feel threatened, they actually emit a pheromone, a really strong smell. And so when you, like, touch up against a bee, that if you, say, rub one or try and pick one out of your hair or something Mm. and it feels threatened, it then emits this smell that says to all the other bees, come in because I'm feeling threatened, so you touch this bee, you get a bit of a smell, and then all of a sudden you've got like more, more and more bees coming to you. So when when you think of it like that, the collective consciousness of the hive, more bees coming, and oh, you actually wow. start to go, and that is their defence because all of a sudden you have bees in your eyelashes, up your nose, in your ears, and it's very distracting. Yeah. And although they can't sting, they can give you like a tiny little nibble. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> I do have, I was doing research and I saw one of your things and one of my questions is literally just, bees bite? <laughs> yes, yes. It's kind of on par with like a little kitchen ant, you know, like it's not really, it's a pinch, okay. it's not really bad, but when you have hundreds of them on you, if they're all biting and they tend to go for like, the, they just know the spots that are sensitive. So, like, they'll be down my top or on my eyelids or, you know, I've got this one, the, the guy that pretty much taught me everything I know. <laughs> it's so funny because um, I reckon they just know everyone's soft spot. Mm-hmm. And he says to me, they just go straight up my pants for my ball every single time. <laughs> it just cracks me up because they don't go up my pants. Like, I don't get that, but they do for him. So, I swear they know. Wow. <laughs> Um, are there many other differences between um, stingless and stinger bees? Yeah, okay. So there are heaps of differences, but the yeah. most obvious notable ones are their size. Mm-hmm. So they are only about four to five mil long in size, wow. um, which is teeny tiny. Mm. And obviously the colour is different. Native bees tend to be, well, we call them black. When you When you get up close, you realise they actually – kind of a little bit brown and they have cream stripes but mm-hmm. just to look at they look like little black flies whereas a European honeybee is black and yellow yeah. obviously and it's a lot larger yeah. um, and they have a stinger little stingless bee doesn't mm-hmm. so that's ob- you know a really obvious difference 
There are many other differences, such as, um, you know, the comfortable foraging range of a native bee is only 500 metres. So when you think about pollination services, you have to take that into consideration. They're only going to comfortably forage 500 metres, whereas your European honeybee, I'm pretty sure their comfortable foraging range, don't quote me, but is like 13 kilometres or something. Oh, damn. Huge difference. So, yeah, native, that's obviously another big big thing to consider when choosing which bees for pollination. Mm. Um, The honey that they make is, it still tastes like honey, but it's vastly different. Um, Okay. Yeah, and they've done all these studies on it and it's, you know, far outweighs any kind of manuka. Like it's really, really medicinal honey. Very good for you. But they only make like a teeny tiny little amount. So like a litre to a litre and a half, European honeybees might make like, any well, just like a backyard hive might make twenty kilos to like a commercial hive might make a hundred kilos a year. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another huge big Yeah. Difference. Um and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff around, you know, mating and swarming. Like European bees will abscond a hive, they will all up and fly away if they run out of room, for example. Mm-hmm. Native bees never do that. So once the queen has mated and become a fertile, once the princess has mated and become a fertile queen, she actually expands so much like a little piano accordion and her abdomen pops right out and it's huge and she's like in a state of constant pregnancy, I suppose, Yeah. where she can't fly anymore. So she's so big she can just waddle around the hive and lays eggs for the rest of her life. So if anything is going like they've reached capacity, they don't all just up and leave like a European beehive would. So mm-hmm. you don't capture swarms the same either. That's a really different process. There's a few differences, but there's heaps, heaps more. Yeah. yeah. And then you said that um, in Australia there's 12 different species of stingless bees. Yeah. Are there big differences even just between those 12 species? Yes and no. You know, yes, there's um, like some of the species up north um, they make little tiny colonies, you know, mm-hmm. and they make them in, say, the, um, what do you call that, of your sliding door, you know, in the little crevice there. Yeah. Work, and they use tiny little cavities to do that. Mm-hmm. And they can be, there's a variation of colour as well. Mm-hmm. But the hives that I breed are the two species that are naturally occurring along the east coast of Australia. And they their cavity size needs to be about four to eight litres for them to be able to build there. So there's things like that. But there are other differences, but there's some pretty major obvious differences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very cool. Um, so talking about, you know, how you use your hives and things, what what is it you actually do as a beekeeper for people who don't know? Yeah, okay. Well, I breed bees mm-hmm. and sell bees. And on top of that, I do educational services or, you know, demonstrations, splitting workshops and things like that. But most, the bulk of my business is around just growing my beehives and then selling. And surprisingly, I mostly just sell to people like you and I. Okay. Yeah. So I do offer like pollination services for big crop farmers and stuff like that. But the majority of my sales come through from people just like you and I who are like, hey, that's pretty cool. They're completely harmless. Mm-hmm. They're really low maintenance. Like, yeah, I'm going to get on board and get a hive, you know. So yeah. 
Yeah. So how much sort of, um, you know, you said you sort of did a bit of an apprenticeship. Um, how much training do you need to be a beekeeper, whether it's for a job or just if you have a hive in your backyard? Yeah, that's another really good question. I think as the industry grows, that the answer to that question will change. Mm-hmm. As of now, there is no qualifications and very minimal um, actual education as well. So I think there is a course down in New South Wales that runs at a TAFE, but you don't need any qualifications. Um, I'm certainly not qualified. <laughs> I did a very informal kind of, you know, in quotation marks here, uh, apprenticeship, and that's where I learnt my trade. But if you had someone who could teach you a few things, but just for like having one hive, you honestly, when when you buy a hive from me, I send you an email with all the information you need to know. Mm. When you come pick it up, I run you through like a 20-minute little introductory talk just so you walk away feeling like you know what you're doing. But really there's no skills required at all. It's very, very easy. Right. And do you ship um, hives all over Australia or just on the East Coast or? Just where they're naturally occurring. So yeah. right up the tip of Queensland down to yeah. about uh, Wollongong. Yeah. Yep. And inland a bit, but not too far in. That's all predicted by weather and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, um, <laughs> I had this thought, of, do you do you ship live bees in the hives or do you send just the hives? Yes. It's so weird, but yes, I do put bees in the post. <laughs> so I like, I, <laughs> I know it's such a weird concept, isn't it? And I swear every time I go like to... I've got two different methods of postage. I have a career service that I use, but sometimes I need to go to the Australia Post. Mm-hmm. And when I go to the post office, the response of the staff is always just hilarious. <laughs> you go, what? In there? Like, it's like, what? And they just see the fear. Like, oh, I'm like, they're sting those. They're locked in. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you pretty much just lock them in. The bees always return to their hive at night. Yeah. Or if it's raining or dark or wet. Mm-hmm. bees return to the hive and then you just put like little gauze caps over their entrances so they can't come out and fly yeah and you package it up for me that just looks like a cardboard box yeah <laughs> and you pop them in the post <laughs> i know it's such a weird concept. i'm just i'm just picturing some poor postal worker just hearing a package buzz <laughs> <laughs> well it could be worse it could be a tick but you know yeah, yeah preferably not <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. I <laughs> get pretty excited. I was, one of my questions was if you sell the honey, but considering they make such a small amount, is that more just for yourself you keep that? Yeah, so I don't sell it. Um, and that's mostly to do with the, the amount of time it takes to grow bees. Mm-hmm. So pretty much one hive can be propagated and made into two hives about every year to year and a half approximately, give, mm-hmm. give take, depending on the conditions. But one hive becomes two within a year, let's say. Two becomes four, four becomes eight. But you can imagine how many years I've had to grow my bees and how long that has taken to even have enough stock to sell hives. Yeah. But to actually then take honey, it means that I can't breed the bees. So it's one or the other. You either right. breed the bees or you take the honey. And if I was taking the honey, then I wouldn't be able to grow my bees and I wouldn't have enough supply. Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So How many hives do you have? 
at the moment? Good question. I kind of don't. Uh, don't really know, and I know that sounds terrible. But when you're a, when you're a beekeeper, like admin and technology is just not your your finest point. So I don't really know. I I probably you know uh, yeah I don't know. Yeah, is it like in your backyard, or do you have them somewhere else, like your office, or? Definitely have them all over Brisbane. So uh, oh, okay, yeah, there are hives in my backyard, but I definitely run out of space. So yes. have what I call host families mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, you can come put your bees in my yard and oh, so wow. there and, you know, I'm like, can I put 10 in? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so I've got hosts all over Brisbane and I used to have them a bit further down the coast, but thankfully um, I took them before COVID hit. Yeah. Yes. So mostly just Brisbane at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, why should people keep bees? Environmentally wise, it's a really nice way to conserve native bees mm-hmm. um, because bee numbers have grown significantly since breeders started breeding native bees. Um, and obviously with all the land clearing and stuff like that that goes on, we are losing a lot of wild hives. Yeah. So it's really important to up those numbers. Yeah. Did the bushfires make much of an effect? I can only imagine. Yeah. You know, there isn't a huge amount of data around that kind of thing, like wild mm-hmm. hive colonies and stuff, but I can imagine that it would have been absolutely devastating Yeah. all creatures, obviously, but, yeah, absolutely devastating. And I think there are a number of people who are working at regenerating some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, conservation, obviously a really big reason, and, of course, pollination. So... These little guys are great little pollinators and they do it so safely. So <laughs> if you have, if you're a grower of vegetables and fruit, you might want um, little bees to come in and pollinate for you. Yeah. Do you have much of a green thumb having to keep, you know, things around for your bees to pollinate? Um, that's a yes and no question. I love gardening. Yeah. I have a great garden here. Um, it's, But it's, I wouldn't say I'm a green thumb. I have um, a bit of a theory. Whatever whatever survives can stay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it doesn't survive. It's it's out. But my <laughs> garden is very like permaculture, kind of just rambling. It's a mess, but I grow a lot of my own food, and there's always plenty for the bees to eat. So, yeah. and I love it. Yeah, that's really cool. I I myself definitely do not possess a green thumb. Um, I unfortunately kill most plants that come near me, um, which is a really bad thing. I've had a lot of herb gardens die over my life. Um, I I used to live with two housemates who loved gardening and they like built a veggie garden from scratch in the backyard. And, like, they were in charge of it because they knew I was terrible. And there was one time where they both went on holiday for a week and they bought, like, a sprinkler system that would that would hit all of the plants and they put a timer on it and they were like, Chelsea, all you have to do is turn the hose on once a day. I was like, I can do that. And the plants survived. It was great. <laughs> but I appreciated they knew how simple they had to make it for me. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the way I garden. Like I, I have everything has to be low, low, low maintenance. Yeah. It's high maintenance. It isn't going to survive. So I, that, I like that. That's my kind of gardening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
We spoke sort of a little bit about, you know, what you do with selling hives and stuff, but can you tell me about Be Yourself Australia and how you started that business? Yeah. Um, so I started this business eight years ago um, and as I said, you know, that family friend had kind of been hosting hives at my home and I'd seen them around for a few years mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we used to chat and, and then I kind of did a very informal apprenticeship with him and I was actually, I was working, I was working for um, corporate at the time, way back then. And, you know, I was doing really well. Like within three days of being there, they gave me a promotion. And then the next week they came and sat, sat there and were like, you know, you're going places. Like, you know, wow. it's really, you're doing really well. We love you. Like, and I was like, yay, you know, I'm finally going to get that job that has maternity leave and paid holidays and, you know, all this great stuff. But I and I loved the actual work, but I hated the environment. Mm. It's one of those like really toxic, bullying, horrible, bitchy workplaces. Yeah, directed at me, but I just witnessed it happening. Um, and I just thought, you know what? Like, I don't want to be spending my days here. Like, I actually want to get outside, get into nature, and do Ooh. something I actually love. So, yeah, I just, I really took a big leap. Like I had no money, savings, nothing. And I started and, you know, I I still leave off the smell of an oily rag. So I still run this business with, you know, you know, I've never had that big amount of capital to set up or anything. I just decided this is a lifestyle Mm -hmm. I love and I want to do it. And, yeah, just jumped in. Yeah, that's really brave to take that big leap um you know people would be too scared to do that or just not um aware enough of themselves and their mental health to go oh wait this is I need a change so that's a really cool thing that you did there thanks yeah yeah you know I'd spent years and years humming and hiring like I want to do something different but I just never knew what it was Mm -hmm. um and it was actually a really wise old guy who said to me once you've got to stop thinking Sarah listen stop oh. stop thinking because I was saying to him like you know I'm trying to think what can I do like and he said stop thinking calm your mind quiet your mind and listen and mm-hmm. then the bees I say when the bees came to me because in my experience it was like that was something that had always for the last couple of years it had been there every day I'd seen them Mm. And I calmed my mind down and I actually started to listen. They came to me and I was like, I can do this, you know. And yeah. I started as just a, I just thought it was going to be a little hobby business, to be honest, just as yeah. a So for the first three years, I treated it just like a bit of pocket money. And, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, you know, thankfully people are actually starting to really become aware of what our environment needs and some people are taking action. So, yeah, it's grown. Yeah. Do you have any um, stories of um, people that you've you've worked with um, that come to mind of, you know, a funny anecdote of someone trying beekeeping? <laughs> oh, let me think. I don't know. I've worked <laughs> with so many great people. Um, one old fella, he's actually a European beekeeper. Mm-hmm. If anyone out there is uh, listening, um, he was just <laughs> – Every time I worked with him back when I was doing European, uh, he had me in hysterics, the amount of stories that he would tell. And I never knew if they were true or not. Like, they were so <laughs> funny. Um, I don't know if you know, but with European honeybees, um, 
at nighttime, if you turn on a light, they will all go towards the light. Um, like moths. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. This, and they'll be quite angry too. Like, <laughs> he tells this story about how he was um, moving his bees across the New South Wales border. Uh, I don't know if you know, but, like, they often call that um, bit there the, the, what do they call it, the something belt? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> up in Tweed, it's kind of known as, like, a, a bit of a druggie. But like oh, okay. a lot of people grow their own stuff in that yeah. little zone there and it's got a bit of a reputation. Mm-hmm. And he was moving his hives across the border right at this place that's got a bit of a rep. And he got pulled over by the police. And he said to the, the, the policeman thought he was moving drugs, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the policeman said, you know, I'm going to go and check the back of the ute. And he goes, oh, trust me, you don't want to shine your torch on the bees and you don't want to, like, tap or aggravate that box because it will really upset them. Oh. But the cop just thought, yeah, classic excuse for someone moving drugs. And so the cop, what did he do? He went around, tapped the box, and then shone the light. He <laughs> <gasps> used to just tell these stories, like, one after the other, and I'd be like, are these even true? <laughs> How the hell? But, oh. yeah. Was always having these mad experiences like Can that. Can you imagine being that copper and getting that shock oh, of just all these angry bees? Oh no! Yeah, you would just like you would just be horrified. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've worked with heaps of really lovely, beautiful, beautiful people. Maybe. Yeah. And do you find that um, most people like when they start, they really do get into it, and it becomes like a real passion hobby for them? Yes, I always say it's contagious and highly addictive because pretty much you get really addicted, you get so into it, you want to read everything, listen to every podcast, like watch every YouTube, and then all of a sudden you're like talking to all your friends about it or your family and then they're like buying hives and getting into it. So, But it's a pretty good pretty good hobby to have. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, I probably should have asked this earlier, but one of my questions was because you do have the stingless bees, do you still wear protection when you're around them? You can, but you don't mm-hmm. need to. Um, but when I have a day full of splitting hives ahead, I will definitely take a veil and put a veil on because, as I mentioned briefly before, when the bees feel threatened, they mark you with a pheromone. Yes. And so more bees will come in and give you a little nibble. Mm-hmm. So um, once you've been marked from the first hive you've split and then you go to the second hive, they can already smell the pheromones from the first one. So right. you get to the end of the day, you're at 15, 20 hives, and you go, oh, I'm getting hammered by these little mm-hmm. bees. So it does help just to have a veil on. But you certainly, if you were splitting one hive, don't need it. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about that um, splitting hive? What does that term mean? Yeah, so that's a, a propagation method that I use. There are mm-hmm. other methods. Um, there's another really popular method called duplication. Um, mm-hmm. But I personally use the splitting method, which basically you take a full box of bees and you put your hive tool in the centre and crack it open in the middle. Yeah. Take the full top half of bees and you put it onto an empty bottom box. Yep. You put an empty top on the full bottom. And then mm-hmm. the bees spend the next, you know, 12 months or so growing into that empty space. Right. That's how, yeah. Yeah. So how does that, if there's only one queen bee in one hive and she goes with one half, does a queen bee then emerge from the other half? Almost. A, a princess bee, yes. Oh, okay. So a queen bee goes in half A, 
Mm-hmm. Then half B, you have to ensure that you have what's called a queen cell. Okay. And she will, that cell will emerge a princess bee. And then that princess bee comes out and emits, the hive then emits a pheromone calling in all the drones. Now, drones are male bees, in case you didn't know. Okay, uh, yep. And so drone bees start coming in. And a researcher recently discovered that some of those drones are flying in like 15 kilometres. Oh, wow. To come and mate. So we know that their comfortable foraging range is 500 metres, but these drones mm-hmm. are going like phenomenal distances. And they hang around outside the hive. Sometimes it can go on for like a few hours and sometimes it can go on for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But drone bees hang around outside the hive and they do this thing called congregating on branches and fence posts and they pretty much line up and gather together outside the hive. Yeah. And then the moment that princess bee takes her mating flight, one lucky drone, or unlucky, I guess it depends on how you look at it, (laughs) one drone bee will mate with her and when he ejaculates, his phallus then explodes and falls off. And he dies. Yes. So is he lucky or unlucky? I'm not sure because it's a pretty great way to go, but that's it. End of life for him. I'm sorry. If they taught that in school, <laughs> people would be interested in bees. <laughs> yeah. That is one of the best facts I have ever heard. <laughs> so I don't know, but, you know, all those other hundreds of drones just sitting around, they actually never get to mate. So they, that's the only job a drone bee has, by the way. The only job his whole entire life is to mate. So if he's not that one lucky drone whose phallus explodes, then he's pretty much gone his whole life and not achieved anything. Wow. (laughs) So worker bees are actually the female bees and they make up the majority of the hive and they do every other job inside that hive. Mm -hmm. So they um, build the nest, they provision the cells with food, they're nurse bees for the young bees, then they're guard bees, and they do housework and keep the hive clean. And then in the last little bit of their life, they go out and forage. So the drones don't participate in any of that. Right. They're only hanging out to mate with a princess bee. And once she's made and become a fertile queen, um, that hive then now has an active queen and the hive will grow. Wow. <laughs> stuff I didn't know that's fascinating yeah you see Um, why I like working with bees I'm like the bee movie was not scientifically (laughs) accurate Um. no I know I have kids ask me all the time is there a king bee and I'm like not really do you need a king do you really want to know (laughs) (laughs) so yeah oh my god that's that's amazing um (laughs) And the only, um, like the only difference between a worker bee and a princess mm-hmm. is that the the worker bees will actually build this egg cell up a little bit bigger, and then they provision it with a little bit more food. So when the queen bee drops a female worker bee, like a female egg cell in there, the extra food will enable that bee to develop reproductive organs, mm-hmm. so that she can become a princess. So that's the only difference between a worker and a princess. She was fed more food in a bigger cell. Wow. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that's fascinating. What's the um, average lifespan of a native bee? So the two species that I have, Tetragonula carbonaria and Tetragonula hockensii, they're, they're naturally found along the east coast. They um, they have a 
very similar lifespans. Some of the other species have different lifespans, but pretty much 50 days in cell and 100 days out of cell. Mm-hmm. Queen bee lives about one to two years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, It's amazing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask as well, is there, like, are are there um, facts in quotation marks that people get wrong about bees? Like, you know, things that you hear. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So the common ones are, oh, my bees swarmed and left. Yeah. And as I mentioned before, that actually doesn't occur. If your bees aren't there anymore, they've probably died. Very sorry to tell you. Yeah, so don't have the heart to tell people, but they don't actually fly away. Mm-hmm. So that's a really common one. Another one that I get asked all the time is, can I just buy the bees without the box? I just want to come pick up bees and put them in my own box. That doesn't happen like that. You know, with European bees, you can pick up frames of bees and put them into a different box, mm-hmm. sell a smaller hive or a nuke or whatever. Native bees, it's just scooping out the bees is a really risky process and something that we don't choose to do unless we have no other choice why is why is it a risky process because the egg cells mm-hmm. that's actually another really good difference between europeans and natives so european bees build hexagonal cells mm-hmm. these like lobes long long kind of frames right uh native bees actually leave their they create their food stores in a completely different way and different area to their egg cells. So the egg cells are teeny tiny and they're in the centre of the hive and the honey pots and pollen pots are always on the outer edge and they're much bigger. They're about the size of a small grape as as opposed to like the size of half a rice bubble. Yeah. So, yeah, completely different area, different size. Um, I forgot where I was going again. Uh, why it's risky to uh, this, is, this is typical of me I'm sorry <laughs> you're good so when you scoop out the bees you're actually you're having to cut through their nest material and often that involves honey and spilt honey and yeah you can't just literally pick up bees and move them and with Europeans the bees will always follow that queen bee with native bees that doesn't happen so if you want the bee numbers you have to take the the hive yeah I'm sure I didn't explain that the best, but it is a, a risky procedure that you wouldn't yeah. do unless you had to. Yeah. 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 Um, and, I mean, my now favourite fact about bees is the whole phallus exploding thing. But <laughs> is, there, um, is there something that you wish more people knew about bees? Um, yeah, I wish more people just knew how accessible and easy they are. Like everyone can have a hive of bees, even if you live in an apartment complex or mm-hmm. you know, 23 storeys high or you live by the beach. It doesn't really matter. Everyone can have a backyard hive and therefore also have a little bit of this amazing medicinal honey. Yeah. So that's probably the thing. Yeah. Does um, having pets or anything make a difference? No. So like they, they don't, they coexist perfectly with everything. Yeah. They don't yeah. bother animals at all or kids. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, now, to sort of move on to a slightly different topic, um, when we were sort of organising to, to do this interview, you mentioned that you have um, a rather rare disease um, called hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsies, uh, known as yeah. HNPP. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. so it was about five years ago I, I – um, had an episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually out on a first date 
and I'd had like a couple of cocktails, but like, you know, back then I was pretty drink fit, right? Mm-hmm. And I stood up to go to the bathroom and I fell over and I was oh. pretty embarrassed yep. as you would be. I'm trying to be like super impressive and then I just stack it in the middle of this bar. So I get up and I'm like, oh, my legs feel really funny. And I start to question whether this dude has spiked my cocktail. Yeah. Where my brain went. Um, yeah. Like back out of the date. But before I even left, I'd fallen over again. And I was like, that's so weird. You know, I just wanted to get home. Mm. Um, and then the next day, like it just kept happening. I, I remember I was, I was standing at the top of the stairs and I tumbled down the stairs. And I was like, what's going on? And at the time I was living with my sister and her husband and their kids. And he just said to me, you need to call like an ambulance. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. Typical of me. Anyway, I did. I ended up calling like one, three health or something. And they said they called an ambulance on my behalf. (laughs) They were like, you need an ambulance now. They suspected I was having a stroke. Thankfully that was not the case. Mm -hmm. But I was in there overnight and pretty much they sent me home saying, listen, we don't think it's like life threatening, but we have no idea what it is, but we're going to send you home. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the next 10 months, I think it was, I think it was 10, seven, or seven to 10 months roughly, I, I had to wait until I got an official diagnosis. Mm. I just didn't know what it was for so long. Um, but, yeah, I pretty much had to like learn to walk again. So at first I was on crutches, then I had a walking stick, and then I just had this drag in my left foot for like 10 months. Yeah. And at that point in my life, the only vehicle I owned was a motorbike, and I couldn't change the gears on my motorbike anymore. Wow. Because of this, like, they call it a foot drop. Yeah. So I had to, like, basically readjust my whole life. Um, And, yeah, when I got the diagnosis, it was – Actually, a bit of a relief because mm-hmm. anything worse. Yeah, but it's hereditary, obviously. So I've had it my whole life, and something had triggered it to have a major episode. Mm-hmm. When I look back, I actually now can recognise a lot of the issues I'd had were related to this, but I just didn't realise. Yeah. Um, so it impacts a stack of things. Like for example, I have hearing loss, and it's going to get worse, and that's related right. to this condition. So. There's a lot of symptoms, but the major one is these palsies can be anywhere from, you know, just tingling or numbness for a few minutes to completely paralysis. Yeah, yeah. And you um, you mentioned when we were chatting that, like, if you get, like, pressure on a nerve or something, that can cause paralysis. So um, have you had that happen to you at all or um, and what do you do to take precautions for that? That's the word right there. I, everything I do is just preventative action. Yeah. So I absolutely get palsies. Happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm so acutely aware of what's going on in my body, I tend to be able to go, oh, I can feel it happening. And whatever it is that I'm doing, I change the behavior. So I don't tend to get anything major. But if I was in an accident and unconscious, for example, mm. I have in my medical notes, like I need to be moved, I need to be turned. But say if I was just laying in a hospital bed unconscious and some, they didn't turn me, that pressure would definitely, or even if I had to have surgery, surgery, the nerve damage from surgery would be really bad for someone like me. Oh, wow. There's just so many things to consider. And pretty much when I had this episode five, five years ago, my whole beekeeping life 
my whole life, but beekeeping in particular has had to change. I used to squat down on the ground and do every hive. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I can't squat anymore because the pressure that when you have the hip flex and the pressure on your knees, I'd stand up and then lose power to my legs. Um, When I used to make hive boxes and I was on the drill just for like 10, 20 minutes, I started my hand just started getting these palsies that would last for like two weeks and I couldn't even grasp a pen or pick up a coffee mug. Yeah. Okay, so I can't make my boxes anymore. Someone else makes them now. Um, So it's all just about prevention. When Mm -hmm. I'm on a motorbike, I regularly stop, pull over and just stretch my legs because if I'm in that position for too long, I will get off my motorbike and stack it, which I've done lots lots of times, and it's not a good look. No. Um, What about, like, sleeping? I'm – if yeah, you probably have noticed, I'm a fidgety person by mm-hmm. – I've got, you know, ADD. Um, so I'm always constantly moving and my sleep is no exception. Yeah. I wish I got a great night's sleep, but I'm a, someone who just moves all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have to, yeah. Yeah, which in this case is annoying as not getting a good night's sleep. is It's probably a good thing because yeah. at least you're moving. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. if I go out for like a fancy dinner or something and I'm sitting at the table, I am – very discreetly underneath the table, constantly moving all parts of my body. Right. Just don't, you know, 20 minutes sitting on a toilet would be enough to like, give me a palsy. Yeah. So wow. I move a lot. Like sitting on an aeroplane, like, I mean, not that there's many flights happening right at the moment, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was always a big thing. I just had to, um, con- you know, you can actually move quite a lot while you're sitting in your seat. Mm. So, yeah, I do a lot of that. Yeah, there you go. That's really interesting. It's, yeah, one that I had never heard of before. Um, Yeah, and it's hereditary. So have any of your your family had it? Um, My mother has been tested and she doesn't have it. And I'm not in contact with my dad, so I'm not sure if he does or not. Mm -hmm. But there is an option that, like, if it's not my dad, there is the option that I am the first person to get it and they call that, like, a gene mutation. Mm -hmm. Um, But it probably is my dad who has it. And I have five siblings and not one of them has got tested. I would really, really oh. love it if they would. But I think it's kind of like one of those things, sometimes you don't want to know stuff. Yeah. Like, and, and it, it can take like a really big episode, uh, a really big trigger for you to get an episode. And if you mm-hmm. don't have a big trigger, sometimes it is one of those diseases that kind of can lay a bit dormant. Yeah. 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 Did the guy get a second date when you realised that he hadn't spiked your drink? That's hilarious. <laughs> he actually said he would really like to go out on another date. Um, but I I guess I was so stressed by the whole thing that's that I just said, at least, and I don't think that's very fair. So we, uh, yeah, we called it a day. <laughs> Uh, now, we are getting to the end here, uh, but I always like to ask a random question yes. uh, towards the end of the podcast, so it's got nothing to do with anything that we've talked about so far. So my question for you, Sarah, if you could make up a themed restaurant that you could go to, any theme, what themed restaurant would you like to eat at? Okay, it's probably a little bit boring, but I really love, like, big band swing music. Okay. So I would love to, like, step back in time, kind of like the flapper style, mm-hmm. the wave curls, yeah. ball gown, and go and listen to, like, big band music and dance and eat a beautiful meal. That would be my idea of heaven. 
I'm sure that exists somewhere. I went to a place that was a little bit similar in, in London called yeah. Dishoom. I, I can't remember. They were pretty amazing but not quite the um, the fancy. The level that you want. Like you want to walk into a room and it be black and white. I walk back in time. Like back into everything is just back in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's very so cool. Fun. I was trying to think of my answer for this. And, like, my first thought, again, this probably exists and it's very cliche. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Um, so a Harry Potter restaurant would be awesome. Um, I always like to say this every time I mention how much I love Harry Potter. Fuck J.K. Rowling. Still love yeah. Harry Potter, though. Um, yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> but, like, that would be awesome to go to a Harry Potter-themed one. But I was like, that's really cliche. Like, what else? I'm like, I love true crime. But I don't know how you can have a true crime themed restaurant without being horrendously offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, but I get you. I'm a huge true crime fan as well. And yeah. Like a murder mystery one, but maybe you could have like a true crime themed one. Is yeah. That I don't know how it would work. <laughs> I lo- one of my favorite podcasts is Wine and Crime. Shout out to the Wine and Crime girls. Um, they basically get drunk and talk about true crime, and it's a it's a comedy true crime podcast, which I love. Love this. Yeah, they're great. Um, some of the cases are super dark, but they're just so drunk, and they're like, "We're so sorry." <laughs> um, so I, I feel like if, if anyone were to make a a, a true crime themed restaurant I think the wine and crime podcast girls would have to be involved in, in how to make that not horrific you know I know it's probably wrong but I would be the first one there <laughs> that's the thing is I think a lot of people would all right and my last question for you Sarah is the question that I ask everyone the show is called loud and seemingly confident because that's how I want to describe myself do you consider yourself a confident person that's a hard question. Mm-hmm. You knew it was coming. This is the thing. I actually said to myself, you should prepare for this question. <laughs> no, I, didn't. Um, I didn't at all. I really, in, in so many areas of my life, yes, I am confident. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, sometimes things can shake your confidence and you realise very quickly that underneath, I think some of it's just bravado. Mm-hmm. And underneath I'm actually probably a fairly vulnerable person so um yeah I think not probably not as confident as I put on yeah yeah perhaps also loud and seemingly confident like myself yes seemingly (laughs) yes definitely yeah (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. This has been an absolute blast. I've learned a lot of very fascinating things about bees. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. It's been so great. Um, Thank you, everyone else, for listening in. Please like, share, leave a review, all of those good things. You can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J. Heaney, or you can follow the podcast at Loud and Seemingly Confident, both on Instagram and Facebook. Sarah, where can people find out more about you? I'm on Instagram, Be Yourself Australia. On Facebook, Be Yourself, or my website is www.beyourself.com.au. Perfect. Awesome. Again, thank you so much, and everyone else, we'll see you next time. Thanks.